0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. In the studio with me now is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir.
1: Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you here. Thank you quite excited today I know uh, well, well uh, science, but also I'm, uh, I'm, I'm I'm slow cooking a pork shoulder <laughs> being married to a vegetarian, this is a big weekend event, so um is your partner away or something? Or? No, I just have to make two dinners tonight. Ah, okay, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> fair enough. Uh
0: And also in the studio, we have uh, one of Jen's students from last week. We've asked her back, Holly. Hi. Welcome back.
2: How's it going? Uh,
0: good. It's good to have you in the studio. We uh, well, It's going to just be me and Ray today because everyone else abandoned ship for some reason. <laughs> I, I think there was some game on last night. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I heard something. All all hey,
1: wasn't sure. the women's cricket team?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah that yeah, might yeah, have
0: been yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah, think yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And a big hello to all the Collingwood supporters. <laughs> <for this weekend. laughs> Hope you're having a good day. Uh, we have an hour of science for you, though, folks, and uh, we're going to start off with some news, and then we have a couple of really cool guests coming up. So, Holly, what have you got for us from the week?
2: So, we've all heard about the gut microbiome, so that's the collection of microbes in our gut, right? And you may have even heard of the... The, you know, the, what we call the gut brain axis. So the Mm. sort of relationship between what's in your gut, the microbes and what you eat and your brain. So they sort of associate your microbes with different mental health things like anxiety and depression and whatever. Um, but what this new study has done, this study that came out, uh, this week in Cell, has looked at identifying a nerve that actually links that because scientists have always known oh. that there's this sort of association between the brain and the gut, but we haven't actually found, like, a biological reason for that. Um, and a few years ago, there was this paper that sort of noted that people with IBS and Crohn's um, had a lower activity of what's called this fake vag- in this vagus nerve so and that's what they looked at in the study so this vagus nerve is this n- really long nerve that goes from the base of your brain right down to near where your colon mm, is yeah um and it goes really fast. it's like massive nerve and it's you know messages can travel quite fast through it um but what they did was they found the same nerve in mice and then they stimulated that nerve um Using a laser, Um they call it optogenetics, <laughs> and optogenetics. so they st- yeah it's a you know, I love genet- it when
1: I learn a new term yeah
2: yeah, yeah. so and they sort of put
1: sun- in the- shining lasers at cells they'll do stuff when you when you yeah, shine yeah, a laser yeah yeah they actually from. do yeah. yeah
2: no it's pretty cool stuff so they yeah, they stimulated it in that way and then um you know so that the nerve shot up the sort of signal through this vagus nerve up to the brain, but at the brain they noticed that the mice released dopamine. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I talked a little bit about last week, so yeah. your listeners are experts on dopamine now. <laughs> but they found that, yeah, so stimulating that nerve released dopamine and it actually changed their behaviour as well in, in the cages as well. So that sort of gives scientists a sort of reason to believe that, well, that might explain why, you know, eating certain things might make us feel good. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to see that these sort of reward-related Neurons are found outside mm. the brain and they work in much the same way.
0: That's fascinating. You, you wonder how much too, like the, with that connection between the amount you eat when you feel full. Yeah. All of these yeah. things are all linked in there. Cause I, I, I once read and I, I, you know, cause I read it, I assume it's true. It yeah, um, may, may have been some weird magazine, but um that, you know, our brain works out we're full about 20 minutes after we're actually yeah, full. Yeah, exactly. So you should, you know, there's this idea of, I think it's a Japanese diet where you eat until you're 70 to 80 oh, yeah, full because that. then you, then when your brain catches up, mm. um, you realize, oh actually I was full 20 minutes ago, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't d- have eaten that second burger, you know, and you, and, and you actually feel much better if you, you know you don't sort of eat until your brain says I'm full exactly because, I think that's
2: a yeah. hormonal thing actually the way that that works that right? um, so that's why it goes so slow whereas this nerve is like Fast. you know might be yeah explain something else
1: I, I'm more amazed that we're still discovering what nerves do now I mean, we've, <laughs> yeah. we've picked apart the body for a long time yeah, I yeah, think yeah, we yeah. know where they all are Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that we're still going I wonder what this one does yeah. let's yeah. pull the string yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, so, let's hit it with a laser I, and see what happens yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well that's cool very nice. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Dr. Shane, I have a, a story about manta rays. I love a big Ooh. manta ray. I, I do. And, yeah. you know, they're just such majestic creatures. And, uh, of course, you, of course, know that manta rays are filter feeders, which means yeah. they, they eat plankton hmm. uh, and, and small little crustaceans. And they do it by filtering. But unlike bales, which are whales, which are bales, hmm. whales, which are, 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 of course, baleen whales are, are kind of like the biggest filter feeder on the planet. And they have this baleen, which causes a filter and water. With krill in it, runs through the filter. The krill are bigger than the holes in the filter, so they get stuck in the baling, and then the the, the the whale can eat them. But mm. but manta rays are like other gill-based filter feeders. So they filter, but they just have a big open mouth. If you've ever seen Blue Planet, you know, that great yep. pictures mm-hmm. of the manta ray swimming around. Uh, the water goes through their gills, and their gills actually filter out the food. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is different than baleen because most of the water goes out, and what's amazing is the gills have normally filter feeders have little hooks in them, basically, and and, and they create kind of like a sieve filter that filters out the food. Mm. Now, what's interesting about manta rays is they are filter feeders, but they don't work like other fish, and 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 why they don't is how they figure out oh they're filter feeders. Um and, and is one of the things they do is they look at what they're eating, so they'll actually look at the contents of a, a manta ray or filter feeder stomach. And the thing is, people have looked at manta rays and looked at those the filters in their gills. And and all filters have holes in them, or most filters, where you know the idea is there's a pore in them, and things bigger than that pore get stuck and things smaller than it don't. Mm. Well the thing is when they look in a manta ray's stomach, they go, There's a bunch of things in here way smaller than the holes of the pores in the filter. Mm. So how did the small things end up there that they know figured out how the big ones was? And as it turns out manta ray filters? work entirely different than any existing filter. So we've got sieve filters. We've got shear filters. We've got hydrosol filters, which are filters that are sticky. And, of course, we have cyclonic filters. And you go a cyclonic filter, that's what a bagless vacuum cleaner is. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, But what they found was is that these manta rays are actually designed with this very clever fluid flow in, in the geometry of the actual Internals of their filter that actually cause these little turbulent eddies and, and, and cause particles to hit the filter and bounce off. So mm. small particles can actually hit the filter, bounce off, go to the stomach while the water can still go through. And they call it ricochet filtration. Mm. Now, this was, I, as a, hey, why do you care? That's kind of neat. I was fascinated with the method because they did actually model fluid flow. So the same thing chemical engineers mm. worry about fluid through pipes. They worried about fluid through manta ray. Mm. Mm filters and gills, but how they did it was great because they actually scanned it and 3D printed their <laughs> own manta ray gills and then did mechanical That's studies on on the 3D printed manta ray gills, which which I just thought yeah, was yeah. fantastic.
0: That's a good way of doing
1: it. Um, but there were two things that, that were actually they cared about for this study. One, as manta rays start to have more pressure on their environments and their populations, mm. understanding what they eat and what their needs are as a filter feeder compared to others is actually important for Marine management. And the other thing is the impact of this type of membrane filtration. It works better at high speeds. It doesn't clog. And it may be these designs may actually give guidance in, in designing industrial filtration, mm. which is a huge process in, in everything from food to minerals processing. So it could have some real tangible outcomes.
0: More stuff from nature. Exactly. We, we, yeah. uh, Means of years of evolution comes out with some good stuff every now and then, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk briefly about um virtual reality because this is something that uh you probably notice that these days you can go down to your local electronic shop and you can buy VR gear for, you know, typically less than 500 dollars You know, this is stuff that used to be in the realm of you know not the, the, the home user, but you know, the sort of more professional settings like some of the large you know IMAX type theaters and those mm. sorts of things. But you know if you if you can just go and buy these things off the shelf and some of them are really cheap. The, the question then that needs to really be asked is how do people respond to this biophysically? How do they handle this virtual reality stuff? Because, you know, you, you may be one of those people who has gone to a 3D uh, movie or a virtual reality scenario and you come out feeling like you're ready to give up your lunch. And this is <laughs> not an uncommon experience. In fact, you know, numbers may be as high as one in three. And there's a variety of reasons why this happens, but primarily it's because your body has a number of ways of determining its position in your environment. One is with your eyesight. The other is with your inner ear. And the third one is with your stomach. So, you know, this is, comes back to this idea of, you know, maybe this nerves, nerves involved, yeah. but, but you know, you, you, you know, that when you're on a roller coaster, you know, you feel that lo- lack of gravity as your eyes are telling you this is happening and your inner ear is giving you information at the same time. When you're looking at a 3D film or in a virtual reality environment, ear and your stomach aren't moving so you're Mm. just getting the visual stimulation so in a way your three mechanisms for determining your position in space only two uh, two of them aren't giving you any information one is Mm. and that in some people that can cause a lot of confusion and they end up feeling sick and this can be like quite prohibitive like there are people who literally walk out of these films after three or four minutes mm. there are others who can spend you know up to half an hour in one of these films and you know they feel a bit queasy um, and then there's some people who can sit in them for hours and it doesn't affect them at all now mm. virtual reality mm. is no longer just in the realm of sort of entertainment but it's starting to be used in military training in you know, all sorts of um, aircraft and and uh, other automotive sort of training scenarios, you know, where you're, you're training people using simulators rather than real life. And so if you're one of those people who, you know, you, you're trying to get your pilot's license and you can't handle virtual reality machines, well, that's a bit prohibitive because this is the way all this stuff's going. And it's also being used now in, you know, and you talked about sort of the scanning of the, mm-hmm. Of the man's array, but you know, in medical procedures and so forth, virtual reality training systems are becoming the standard for training. You know, so less and less people are doing training on on actual dead bodies, mm. and more on virtual simulations of those bodies. So this is this is becoming more and more common as as it's become cheaper. So the problem is, of course, how do you know whether or not you are going to be one of the people who has this problem because Mm. until you sort of go into the environment you don't really know how bad it's going to be and if we knew who those people were we might be able to put in some mitigation strategies to help you know deal with that better for those individuals and it may well be that for certain scenarios we have to make sure that that's done because otherwise it's just not fair and equitable for everyone to have to use these systems so the university of waterloo have been looking at this and one one of the things they've found um, is that well first of all the response to vr can last like for quite a number of hours so it's not just you don't just feel sick while you're in it you can feel sick for hours and hours afterwards it's kind of like being car sick which is mm. actually very similar um, but what they what they've done is they've had a look at how people respond if they if they're shown a the moving visual field so something that moves to the eyes um, some people while they're watching that they sway in space they kind of move around a bit and depending on how much you sway they've actually built this model that says if you sway x amount You'll get this sick from virtual oh. reality. So they've been able to, you know, do these simple measurements using this this imagery of the people swaying while they're watching this visual field, and then saying, "Well, sorry, Holly, but you swayed mm-hmm. a great deal yeah. when you put on that VR set to train you to be a fighter pilot. You're going to be puking by the time you're <laughs> 20 minutes in." So this this predictive sort of analysis, without actually having to do the thing, might be really important because you'd be able to determine who is susceptible to being sick, which might be as simple as you taking a medication to prevent you from from being nauseous. Yeah,
1: yeah. But aren't there I mean there's a lot of other things that are getting meshed in with virtual reality. You've got haptic feedback, particularly yeah. for surgeons, where there's robotic mm. pushing back pressure on your your glove or your actuator and and simulated motion is another thing that um I mean yeah. we have this thing at Melbourne Uni, the Karen in biomedical engineering. I right. forgot what it stood for. It's basically uh, a huge Treadmill with a virtual reality integration, so it's for testing people when they have like hurt knees and things. Mm, yeah. um, but but I do wonder if if there would be more in the if simulating motion in in these things might push them a little bit realer too. I don't know if it's vibrations, rumbling, little tracks, things that.
0: Yeah, and I think all of that all of that counts. So the closer you can get it to the real experience, the better. Um, the, the real the real issue, of course, is that we're tending to base a lot of the virtual reality systems just on what the vision perceives and nothing else so uh, for example we had a guest on from nasa probably a year ago now that talked about what's called hybrid reality this is a scenario where they 3d print objects (laughs) and they have a, a system of lasers that tracks your movement around those objects whilst you're viewing a virtual reality simulation of those objects so you know there's a hammer on the table you see a virtual reality computer generated simulation of that but there's actually a 3d printed hammer Sitting on the table that is laser tracked. So when you feel it and you pick it up, the, the virtual reality links to that and it's all tied in together. So it Uh gives, gives, gives a a more, you know, they call it hybrid reality, um, Mm. which is, you know, sort of a a bit more than virtual reality. So some of, some of those environments are are, are very different, but some of them are are more limited. And so knowing, knowing who's affected could be really interesting, but I I find this stuff fascinating because I think the, um, you know, how how you know who is going to get sick is kind of, you really need to take people to a virtual reality thing and just see how they go. At the yeah. moment, which is not a great experience. And if you're, no. if this is part of your profession, it is an extreme, potentially extremely limiting problem that you would need to deal with. Um, you know, like it's like being a window washer and being scared of heights. <laughs> <laughs> Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Three Triple R. On the line now, we have Professor Lister Stavely-Smith from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research at the University of Western Australia. Lister, can you hear us? Uh, Yes, I can hear you fine. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you're uh, working with something that uh, I suspect a lot of our listeners aren't really aware of, which is the Murchison Wide Field Array Telescope. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what sort of telescope that is and where it's located and so forth?
3: Yes, uh, we've been using the MWA for short, Murchison Wide Field Array, and that 's uh located here in western australia uh, it 's a telescope, uh, but it 's actually a radio telescope mm-hmm. so we look at uh, look at the sky using radio waves uh, not uh, not with our eyes or anything and uh, it 's located in Western Australia because uh its uh, you know we have some extremely radio quiet parts of Australia here that is uh uh, parts that are uh, well away from any human activity, uh, in the middle of the, almost in the middle of the desert. Not not quite. and that, uh, that that makes for a really silent, uh, a really silent part of the country to listen to radio waves from.
0: Mm. Now, Lister, uh, give us a bit of an idea of what this telescope's like, because it's not like the one people are probably most aware of at Parks, is it? This is a different style of telescope.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, so the, the reason it's a different style of telescope is because we're able to operate, uh, well, we are operating at very low frequencies, very low radio frequencies. So our telescope actually looks more like a big collection of these old-fashioned TV antennas or FM antennas since uh actually the radio frequencies that we're tuning into are similar to that broadcast by uh fm stations so what we have is uh, uh a bunch of these uh uh what we call tiles uh collections of these tv antennas and uh they're spread on the ground uh they're not uh, they're not dish shaped like the park's Telescope, to but they are uh, spread on the ground uh, in so called tiles each of the tiles are about 5 by 5 meters in size and we have uh 128 of them actually now it's 256 and they're spread over uh, uh, area on the spread over a diameter of about uh, five kilometers or so so it's quite unlike uh, a traditional uh, dish radio telescope and in fact it's what we call uh, an interferometer
0: mm. and what, what does that mean in terms of the effective size of the telescope because as you said that spread over kilometers is that like having the equivalent of a dish that size or is it, does it not work that way
3: yeah, so we have uh, the sensitivity of the dish, uh, you know, the faintness of the signals it can see depends on the total amount of collecting area. Mm-hmm. And the total amount of collecting area of the MWA is not not dissimilar to a big dish uh, like uh, Parks. But as you say, it's spread over uh, a much uh, wider area. And that means that we can see finer detail than we could with a, a smaller Uh, single dish if we just had uh, all those antennas Mm. compacted together uh, we wouldn't see as much uh, as much detail
0: now you're you're looking in particular at two of the galaxies that are i think orbiting our galaxy actually the large and small magellanic clouds um what's uh what's interesting about these particular galaxies that uh this array is being used to investigate
3: uh, so the midgenic clouds are uh, very well known uh, galaxies, they're basically the closest uh, bright galaxies to our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So they're very important for astronomers to uh, study them, uh, uh, you know, we can see them with the uh, highest detail uh, than any other other galaxy. Uh, you say they're orbiting, but it's actually not quite clear whether they're orbiting or not. Uh, uh, quite a few researchers think that they're falling in towards the Milky Way for the first time, and they're therefore fairly fairly pristine. They've managed to hang on to the original gas and stars. So studying those galaxies, uh, in a way, because they are rather pristine, is a little bit like studying galaxies in the early universe because mm. they, they do have some properties which are very similar to galaxies uh, uh, about uh, uh, 7, 8, 9, even 10 billion years ago.
0: Right. And and in terms of uh, the, the parts of those galaxies that you're, you're looking at, what I mean, what in particular is of interest when you have galaxies that are pristine like that?
3: Yeah, so for us at uh, Radio Lens, uh what we're trying to look at or what we are looking at is uh, uh, radiation usually generated from hot gas or very energetic uh, particles. And uh, the strongest source of radiation is from what we call cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are very highly charged, very uh, relativistic, ultra-relativistic particles which, uh, when they spiral in magnetic fields, they uh, uh, they cause a form of radiation, which is easy for us to uh, pick up. And so, so being able to study things like cosmic rays and magnetic fields in uh, environments very different from our own galaxy, from our own neighbourhood, is very important for astronomers in understanding how these things get created in the first place. Uh, how they change with uh, uh, galaxy properties, what are the uh, mechanisms that uh, are responsible for the evolution of galaxies in general. Okay.
1: So, uh, Lister, this is Dr. Ray. I have a, a question on, because um, it, it sounds like it's something difficult to do, is, is, is you said it's, it's a pristine galaxy, and, and uh, last week I just sat through the, the Brisbane Planetarium, one of their shows about time, uh, and by yeah. the way, I did not know Brisbane is the only city named after an astronomer um, uh, but um, uh, but I was trying to understand time because they were they explained distance between things uh, celestial objects in terms of light years, so and they 'd say you know it takes eight seconds from light from the sun to get to earth the, the light we see so y- you described the looking at these galaxies as pristine uh, I, I know they 're close in terms of light years, but how how long ago did the events happen that you're looking at in your, in your telescope?
3: Yeah, okay, yes. Uh, so as you say, it takes light a finite time to travel. It takes uh, eight minutes for light to travel from the sun. And from the metronic clouds, it's, uh, uh, it's about, uh, 200,000, uh, years. Uh, these objects are about, uh, uh, 180 to 200,000 light years away from us. So anything we see now uh, actually happened uh, some time ago. But of course that's, uh, in cosmic terms, that's very, very close by. Uh, these clouds are the nearest galaxies to us. The furthest galaxies we've uh, ever seen are something like uh, 12 or 13 billion light years away from us, or at least it takes, uh, uh, six, it's taken light that long to uh, reach us.
0: Wow. Okay. Mm. And and the objects within the galaxies themselves that you're looking at, I mean, some some of those uh, events, uh, I suspect, happened a lot longer ago than the time it takes for the, the information to get to us as well. Is that right? Yes, that's
3: that's right. So uh, some some events are fairly spontaneous. For example, uh, supernovae. Uh, super a uh, supernova is an exploding star when a supernova explodes, and there was a a famous one in the Large Magellanic Cloud in 1987 uh, called Supernova 1987A, very unimaginatively. Uh, But that we were able to detect within a a few years at radio wavelengths. It was detected immediately, of course, uh, at uh, optical wavelengths. Uh, But other types of radiation take... uh, uh, a long time to develop uh, uh, in, mainly because these cosmic rays I mentioned earlier take a long time to uh, get accelerated. Uh, it's not like having, you know, galaxies don't have compact particle accelerators in them. Uh, the cosmic rays that we see get uh, accelerated in uh, interstellar shock waves and it takes uh, millions of years sometimes for these energies to be reached. So, yes, uh, Some of the events we see are the products of uh, uh, astrophysical phenomena which have occurred over the last few million or tens of millions of
0: years. Mm. Lister, look, it's great uh, to hear about this amazing stuff uh, going on over there in WA. And I I think, uh, you know, it's good that you have the telescope in, in a place where it can work so effectively. I mean, one of the things we don't hear about very often is just how problematic proximity to our cities is for this sort of work. So uh, good luck with the ongoing studies of those uh, two nearby galaxies, and um, we hope to hear more about some of the, the amazing results coming out of the Murchison Array. Great, right. good to
3: talk to you. Thanks
0: very much. Thanks so much. That's Professor Lister Stabley Smith from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in the University of Western Australia. And uh these arrays actually, if you you want to Google it folks, they're quite they're quite cool to look at because they literally do look like a whole lot of T V antennas stuck in the ground and yet they have incredible resolution. They're they're just these arrays are, are fascinating. Three, two, three. Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. This is a science program called Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane and in the studio with us now is Dr. Danielle Kennedy. She's from the CSIRO. Danielle, welcome to Triple R.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you in. Now, you're working on so many things. I'm not even sure where to start, but we've, got, we've agreed that there's three sort of main areas we're going to talk about. Um, the first is a, a platform called AIM. Now, what does AIM stand for and what's AIM all about?
4: Okay, so AIM stands for Active Integrated Matter. Those three words put together don't usually mean anything. But what we're trying to explain is that we're taking off on some future science investment, where we're taking physical things. That's the yep. matter. Yep. Uh, we want to have them integrate with the digital world. That's integrated. Okay. And we want them to do something. So we could have called it cyber physical technologies. We could have called it connected industries. At the time, I thought aim. We're aiming for 2030, yep. and then we found it. Three great words that
0: represented the science that we wanted to you do, just slap them together and bang yeah. you 've got a good word, so g- give us some examples of what sort of things you 're talking about there
4: okay, so AIM is one of eight future science platforms that cSIRO has decided to invest in, and its mm-hmm. goal is to create technologies that will eventually create jobs and industries for australia mm-hmm. so keep keep it in that frame of reference when we 're thinking about the type of science we 're trying to do yep. so Uh, We went, we attacked it with the premise that we wanted to bring disciplines together to do really tricky long-term research. Okay. So some of the things we're doing right now are personalized food. I was really keen, Holly, on your microbiome story early Mm. because (laughs) we're trying to understand how smart food materials could interact with you individually depending on your genetics.
0: Mm. Right. So that's,
4: that's, that's a question that we're working on right now. So So
0: personalized food as in, you would be able to tell me what foods are best for me to eat or would this be constructing food specifically for me? Constructing what that mean?
4: food specifically for you. That's so everything would taste like
0: lobster. So everything I ate would taste like lobster. Is that what we're talking about?
4: Uh, <laughs> not necessarily, but you know, imagine that we're using the Fitbits that we're all wearing, yeah. we're using sensors that we can't even imagine yet. We're using our knowledge about the microbiome and how it interacts with us. So we're thinking in 2030 we might be able to tailor our food
1: Mm. So, is this is this the like 3D printed food where it's it's metered portions and particular mixtures, or is it is it more about controlling? I don't know interactions with the taste buds, the, how things are digested, which is kind of where food science is now. There's a lot of focus on how food's digested and looking at people's different guts, how they work. Or- i,
4: I got to say it's all of the above. It's oh, a big wow. it's a big part of the platform, uh, about a third of what we're doing right now, and it's everything from how we can structure foods, so can we make them nanostructured to release nutrients in a controlled rate, um, through to how do we formulate them so that they can be safe in such a 3D printer in your home so that they can produce them. So this isn't science that we can deliver to you today. This is what we're working on right now.
0: Mm. It's it's fascinating because I think that it also... Brings back the ideas of understanding more about what's nutritional and what's not, because at the moment, a lot of the information that we get on on food and nutrition comes from marketing of products rather than science of products, and that's highly misleading. You know, so you want to you want to get it back to the point where the science is being yeah. delivered. Uh,
4: understanding that the science is in its infancy is really important. Mm. So the questions we're asking right now is, can we structure food? Yeah. So right. take it and process it and structure it in a way that we can control the nutrient release. The next question is, is that actually even good for us? We don't know that answer yet. Right. Um, all we do know is that looking to 2030, we're going to have difficulties delivering food to our current pop- growing population. Mm. So we're looking at ways that we can address that now.
0: Yeah, I'm planning on eating bugs.
4: <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you, you laugh actually. but Textured
1: bugs. 3D printed oh, bugs. Else? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
4: Taking taking the bugs, extracting their proteins, yeah. um, printing them in a fashion that it looks like something that's more edible than a bug. See that that, see that sounds
0: really good. I was just gonna cover them in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> just get the protein by covering them in chocolate. Yeah. What else you got?
4: Oh great. Um so there's the one of the other areas that we're looking at is um what's next for advanced manufacturing. Mm. Um so it you might not see the connection to food, but food is a manufacturing process. So the same types of things that we're looking at in food. Um, how can we 3D print multiple materials to get uh, products that are closer to their end point? You know, you talked about a 3D printed hammer in the virtual reality mm. world, but that's out of plastics, and they're even really yeah. simple. They're brittle, you know, if you've ever seen one of those 3D printed objects. So we're really working on the materials aspect. We're also working, funnily enough, on what we're calling a digital twin for 3D printing. So... Right now, one of the biggest challenges with 3D printing is all the failures. You hear about 3D printing being this massive, successful prototyping, but if you've ever actually done it, it gets stuck or the print right. doesn't work right and you've tossed all of that time and energy in the bin. So we're actually trying to um, model these prints, metallic prints, ceramic prints in computers, um, so that we can get an understanding of the strength of that particular component mm. before we've even stepped off to print it.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's fantastic because if, if I've looked at three D printing, I've always wondered, you know, the either in laser sintering for powders, which Syra's kind of kind of big. We've all heard of I Lab Twenty Two. Lab Twenty Two. They printed the dragon, but also the things that go in people. Um, but when you look at those processes, it's such a complicated combination of transferring heat and energy and how things heat up and melt and flow. And and I've always been amazed there hasn't been more questions asked about that. Because I I always looked at even the simple plastic printers and thought, well, they print them on an X, Y coordinate. But if you want to make something curved, why isn't it moving in spherical translation? Mm. And and, and so that's really exciting to hear that that that's one of your targets. Because I I think that, that ought to have a huge impact in those areas.
4: A couple of examples of the projects in that space. So... If you're thinking about melting a powder that's in a bed to create a layer and then doing that over and over again, you want to make sure that that raked powder is perfect. Mm. So we pay a lot right now for really expensive titanium powder that's really spherical so that we can have surety that that process will work. So what our computer modellers are trying to do is look at all different shapes and sizes for that powder so that we can understand, well, do we really need to pay the premium for the super spherical titanium powder or can we use other powders that are made maybe locally here out in Australia out of titanium sands, but can we use them um, in the process effectively and will, what impact will that have on the strength of the part? Because if you're printing something that's going to go in a human, you want to have certainty that it's mm. going to last, that yeah. it's strong and that your printed pro- product is going to you know, have the properties of a cast product in the long run.
0: Yeah. Especially given the human body is basically hell to everything you shove in it. Now, the second thing that uh, I guess we've sort of started talking about this a little bit, but the, this sort of digital opportunity for Australia that CSIRO is sort of uh, focusing on. Tell us a bit about that.
4: Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, CSIRO's Data61, um, which is just one of nine business units that CSIRO has, released a report in collaboration with a company called Alpha Beta that said that there's a $315 billion opportunity for Australia if we act now and think about digital industries. And so I kind of think of it as data being the most valuable thing moving forwards. You know, Mm. last century, Mm. it might have been oil or gold, but moving forwards, it's going to be data and how we collect that data through sensors, how we use it um, to make decisions and how, you know, those decisions can lead to actions, autonomous actions, whether that be with robotics or simple automated printing processes that start when they know they need a product.
0: Mm. I, I suppose in in one way at the moment we, we forget just how much data we can collect as individuals as well. I mean, we walk around with our smartphones that have, um, you know, GPS location in them, they have accelerometers, they have all of these things that give you very, very precise position um, information and other things and you know you're whether you're walking you're running you're riding you all these things and and I know there was a there's a group out of um uh the US in California that they're using a particular app that they've distributed to people's phones as seismographs so they have more than 5000 people with this app and instead of you know the the 50 seismographs that cost a fortune to go and place at which 50 sites do you choose? Well, that's hard. They've got them distributed in these people's phones all over the, the state. So it, it's that sort of integration of everything that we have that we're not quite doing yet.
4: Yeah, and that, that's where we are making money in companies today, taking mm. our personal information off our phones and turning yeah. into products. But we see a future, too, for next-generation sensors. So um, I talk about often the new internet, so the internet of things, yep. and um, those are different agents, not just your phone, but it could be... Your fridge. Be, uh, your fridge. Yep. it could be a temperature sensor in your house, but it could be the internet of food. You mm-hmm. know, it could be those food safety centres in that printer we talked about. It could also be the marine internet of things. We're really interested in understanding our marine environments better, so... We've, we're actually working right now on sensors that can be embedded within fish and fish can then swim around, collecting the information about the water purity as they swim around and feeding it back into that information system. So, yeah. you know, it's about looking not just what we can do to, today to improve our current industries, but also what industries can we create tomorrow with the next, yes. you know,
0: mobile sensor. And how do and we, we get into these meetings of sorry? I mean, this sounds like a, you know, a, these meetings are where people are just sitting around, they're sucking back a few coffees and donuts, and they're thinking, what amazing shit can we think up for tomorrow? Because, I mean, this is real future gazing stuff, right? Yeah,
4: I have a great job, actually, <laughs> yeah, really? where leading one of these future science <laughs> They signs, pay you platforms. to do this. That's they, awesome. they pay me to do it. And um, we actually started out with six months where I right. said, no one's allowed to do an experiment. You guys form teams, eight people. Different disciplines come together and I'm going to pay you to think. And we don't do that enough because often we just deliver, deliver, deliver. And that's what we've – the strategy we've taken to really get some – You know, step change in research. I
0: mean, a lot of people hear me say all the time that a lot of the way we fund research at the moment leads to a lot of incrementalism where it's very incremental research, not big leap stuff. And there's still, you know, big leaps still happen, but not because of the way it's funded, often by accident or, you know, really smart people doing things that are innovative, not because of the funding mechanisms we have. So it's good to hear that, you know, some, some deeper thinking is going on.
4: So the future science platforms actually have that risk remit. So CSIRO decided they were going to take a bigger risk than they Usually would in Mm. these eight areas so aim is just one of the eight areas Um, and i have a mandate to take risk um, to do things with a long-term visit vision and um, to deliver amazing science that Mm. will lead to industries so you know of course we put a really sound framework around that where i review projects regularly and the science get scientists get held to task but, you know, on the flip side, we're doing really great things.
0: Yeah. Now, before we let you go, I just wanted to talk to you also about the um, Women in STEM Decadal Plan, which I think has just come out. Is that right? Is,
4: no, it's it's it being work- uh, worked, on right worked on right now. Worked on right now.
0: Okay. So, you know, is this a CSRO plan specifically or is no, it one no, that you're actually, contributing to? No, no, it's actually
4: the government has funded a decadal plan for women in STEM that's being delivered by the Academy right. of Science. Yep. Um, in partnership with the Australian Academy of Technology, Science and Engineering, known as ATSI. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so I'm just one of the expert working group of about 20 people. Right. And we're actually in consultation phase now. So there'll be forums in all the major capital cities and, um, we'll also, you know, have open for submissions. So if you go to the Australian Academy of Science webpage right now, you can make submissions until the 8th of October.
0: Mm. So what, th- there must be a set of terms of reference for this particular, task of consultation I mean what what are, are there a couple of big things that are trying to be nuted out with the decadal plan I mean what's the goal no, I, of it at the moment
4: so I think the government's just really looking for how they can invest in in women in stem mm-hmm. areas so it, it's a challenging environment right now I mean I I'm involved because of a passion that I have, because I work at the engineering manufacturing sector, and mm-hmm. often it's confronting to be that only woman in the room and it's harder to have your voice heard. So yeah. um, what the government is doing through this decadal plan is to try and understand what are the key issues, um, hearing from Australian women, and then deliver hopefully some of the recommendations that plan through their programs Mm.
2: yeah i can definitely relate to being the only woman in the room i mean bioinformatics and (laughs) mathematics it's quite common for me so i I guess does that also mean like graduate student like students or is that like more focused on helping people through their careers or is it like at this stage open to whatever
4: yeah it's open to whatever comes from the consultation and we're not limiting it in terms of you know career phase i think there's work to do across Across all of the phases of women's career, we mm-hmm. hear a lot about let's increase programs for school aged children, mm. let's then get more women into university, but there's also the leaky pipe. Exactly, which term, I'm familiar. <laughs> which is a term that's used when women drop out of STEM careers, mm-hmm. you know, around childbearing ages yeah, or like thereafter. PhD. <laughs> it is difficult to be that only woman in the room. Mm. Um, and studies have shown that until there's about 30%, um, diversity, no matter what it is, whether it's women, or, um, whether it's uh, ethnicity, whether it's disability, you know, until you hit 30%, um, it doesn't feel normal. Mm. And so there are areas that are doing really well. Biology is one. Yes, they do quite well, don't they? <laughs> yeah. But
2: I can imagine in informatics. That's... Yeah, bioinformatics, yeah. <laughs> Mostly guys, yeah. For
0: sure. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's interesting and I think it's one of those, I mean, we talk a lot about this on this program. We have over many years and it's one where I suspect there's a lot of known knowns here where programs can be put in place to do some real good. So hopefully the decadal plan will be listened to. You know, I'm a big, you know, one of the great things you can do when you're in government, if you want to delay action is do a review
1: Uh,
0: let's hope that's not what happens here let's hope that the plan actually has some really strong outcomes that can be put in place in the short space of time Danielle thanks so much for coming and chatting to us it sounds like CSIRO doing some really interesting uh you know gazing into the future on this and it sounds like you have the coolest job out because you just get to do this uh you know deep thinking which is which is not something that most researchers get to do
4: yeah the, the other thing is that I get to work with 250 great professional scientists every day delivering yeah. these programs for australia
0: yeah fantastic dr daniel kennedy from the csro uh thanks so much for coming in welcome. uh we're going to take a break folks and we'll come back with just a little bit more news before we end the program yeah welcome back everybody you're listening to einstein and Gogo. we've got a few minutes left for every the news holly you've got something else you want to talk about
2: I do. Um, so when everyone thinks of genetic engineering, a lot of people think of, you know, editing embryos or GM food and things like that. But you can actually apply this to, to mosquitoes. So mosquitoes spread malaria. You can use this sort of technology to, to prevent or manage the spread of malaria. So uh, f- for example, there's this technology called a gene drive. And so what it does is it this gene drive is inserted into your DNA and using CRISPR. And so what it does is for the organism that it's been inserted into, there's a 100% chance that the gene drive is going to be sort of transmitted to the next popu- uh, to the next offspring. Mm. And so in that way it can sort of po- like propagate throughout the population. And so what they did with this study that came out earlier this week is that they put this gene drive into the mosquito that actually stopped them from reproducing, so they were able to kill off these mosquitoes within just a few generations, wow, um in the hopes to prevent malaria and so this isn't killing off all mosquitoes, this is just like the subpopulations
0: that transmit malaria It's kind of scary stuff there,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it can be used in the yeah. in the wrong way, like if you could imagine doing that to like bees or something, you know
0: well, and I, I've often asked too that you know what other you know we don't want malaria but no malaria keeps other populations down exactly not just humans yeah, yeah. And, be really and, and how ethical is it for us to yeah i think it's, it is it's, a messy area yeah. yeah not just because you can mm. can't be the reason exactly
2: you know? yeah, yeah no it was um some interesting stuff and i guess like i, I mean the point of this study was that it was the, the first time that they were able to do it in mosquitoes mm. but yeah um I guess it's something that might be in the future and it's something that we have to think about.
1: Yeah,
0: a lot of ethical issues there for sure.
2: Yeah. It's
1: fun. Dr. Ray? Uh, Dr. Shin, I wanted to touch on something about killer whales. I think it's probably shown up in the news in a couple of places this week as well, and that's um, looking at PCBs, so polychlorinated biphenyls uh, are amassing in, in killer whales. Um, and, in fact, what they're, they've studied, basically, whale, whale blubber and population modelling that, that has the highest concentration of any mammal. Really, and then this is an apex predator problem where uh, you and
0: get. And what are these these chemicals? Where, where do
1: we, oh, so where sorry, they poly. Uh, they were industrial. The U.S. banned them in 1978. Right. Um. There's still production about 1.5 billion tons a year. They're endocrine disruptors. They cause cancer oh. in mammals, and they are also can affect the immune system. And this, wow. this, that, that, that trio is really what's affecting killer whales. Um. Uh, and uh, it's bioaccumulation and then biomagnification because particularly for killer whales that eat marine mammals. Fish diets for killer whales, they're actually doing okay. But that's largely in the Arctic and the Antarctic, mm. Mm. Uh, particularly the marine killer whale populations that live near industrial areas in the U.K., Russia, Straits of Gibraltar, Japan. Um, they're actually seeing such large concentrations, and it's transferred from mother to calf as well, that it's affecting... Um, Population, breeding, uh, immunity, and they're actually predicting on a 100-year scale that in a lot of the regions close to these industrial areas, population collapse in those killer whale pods. Wow. Uh, and this is just from PCB accumulation. And, uh, you know, that, that's because we, we said, hey, this is bad. There's the Stockholm uh, Convention on um, Persistent Organic Pollutants, uh, and, and all these stockpiles should be gone by 2030-ish. But uh, it's these things, even when we know they're bad, when we say, let's get rid of them, and we've gotten, we've gotten rid of them for 10 or 15 years, but they mm. still, even longer, they're still propagating in the environment.
0: Yeah. We uh, have quite the long-term effect, don't we, in some of these yeah. things? Yeah. It's not good at all. Thanks Ray for that, uh, great way to finish the show on a happy note.
1: Manta Rays, filter feeding, <laughs> <laughs> 3D, 3D printing. <laughs> uh, let's get back to So <laughs> good.
0: Uh, Holly, great to have you back in. Yeah, it was great to have you in again. I know you're, uh, you know, you're busy with your student stuff, so it was yeah. great to get you to come back in after last week when you guys rocked the show. That yeah, was really good. Thank you. Um, so good to have you, Ray. Thanks so much for, for coming fine. in. And, uh, next week folks we'll will, um, actually I don't know. I'll I'll work something out for next week. It's still doing this show. Uh, it'll be fun. Next week, though, we'll chat to you about a lot more science. There's heaps. There's so much going on at the moment. We don't know which way to turn first. I'm Dr Shane. You've been listening to Irons Gogo on 3 rr Thanks so much for tuning in to us. Remember that science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.